to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast, where my camera just went dark, and Devin is still there. <laughs> yep. uh, I'm we, still here. We are, uh, you know, doing good, I guess, except for <laughs> except camera we're issues, missing a camera, which yeah. is strange. So. <laughs> I don't know. It, it, we're live, I guess, but we're not live. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I'll take a lead on this one because um, this is the part where DJ asked Devin, "What have you been up to?" Yeah, what have you um, been up to? So I'll talk a bit about what I've been up to um, while DJ figures out what's going on over there. For me, uh, it's been a lot of running around. Things have actually fallen quiet as of recently, but it's been seven days a week doing a lot of freelance work, a lot of editing. Um, as well, uh, some more of the 360 tour work that I've been doing where you set up a, a camera on a tripod all over a space and you it creates a 360 image and it's kind of an algorithm that puts together Google Street View but inside using lasers and a bunch of fancy stuff that uh, I'm too stupid to understand how it works. But um, other than that, it's a shame because I haven't been out shooting yet, which has kind of made it difficult for me to pull the trigger on the gh5 i know people are currently getting their gh5s a lot of people are very excited about it i haven't even ordered mine yet uh but i'm getting to that point maybe in the next week or two because uh, so far i'm liking what i see with it other than that it's been it's been um it's been just a lot of uh of post-production and live work um i did recently start working over at the red bull virtual studio in santa monica so that's been a lot of fun because those guys um the, the, that's just a fun crew to work for um, over for Red Bull. So, But that's that's about it with me. DJ's still struggling yeah, with yeah, his I'm camera. Still, <laughs> I'm still in the dark here. Um, apparently, the USB hub that I normally use to power my camera has just died. And it's I don't just know. no more. Yeah, it's <laughs> awesome. So, uh, great. I may end up switching over to a Logitech if I could actually get it to work. So, uh, you know what? This show is awesome. Thanks it's for off to showing a great start. up. <laughs> it's off to a great start. We've been gone for a while. As you can see, we brought our, our A-minus game, which is totally us. Uh, basically, guys, you're going to get the show notes uh, for the rest of the show on my end, and you'll get Devin, <laughs> but at least you won't have to worry about complaining about my uh, weird, messed up, delayed audio. Again, yeah, that's don't right. Know what... Oh, man. <laughs> and uh, the thing is here is um, I'm actually using that, uh, that, uh, that camera that I love as a webcam, but I hate as an actual camera. Well, it's been getting flaky on me. Uh, my studio has been a mess. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, um, the reason I've been gone, and uh, I haven't said this on the show, but I'll, I'll let everybody know now, um, I did just transition from a full-time video production job uh, to uh, sort of a leadership role, and I can hear the hisses and boos in the <laughs> background uh, right now as, as people are like, what the hell, you're not going to do stuff anymore, you're just going to be a talking head. Well, unfortunately, guys, uh, I... I I wanted to get a better lifestyle, so I have moved away from the money portion, or moved towards the money portion and away from the art portion. Uh, and because of that, I now have to go to many meetings and attend many different uh, events and talk a lot. So that means you see less of me. I travel quite a bit. Um, I've been on the road for the last month, and I will be out again starting think the middle of April heading to Belize and doing some Central America stuff before I come back. So uh, it's fun, it's exciting, but it's less video work uh, than I'm used to. As for myself, I did actually order 
the uh, GH5. I am waiting patiently for my order <laughs> to ship. Uh, there is a live stream, if you guys are interested, on BH, bnhphoto.com at, uh, I think, 8 o'clock at night on the 29th, covering the first shipping cameras and getting everybody who's used the camera together to talk about it. So if you're interested in checking that out, that does seem like a fun event, and I will be posting some stuff on my camera once it shows up. Uh, other than that, Devin, you about ready to get to the news? Dude, I am ready to get to the news. Uh, I love our haphazard, poorly put together show this week. So uh, thanks if you're in the chat room. I, I see we have uh, one person. So thanks for showing up. <laughs> it's exciting times. We have been gone for several months. So that's all my, my fault. Time for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Uh, first up is the thing that represents me on the screen right now. Uh, Canon has decided to get into what I would consider the Zoom Q4n market. And if you're not familiar with the Zoom Q4n or you don't remember it, it was that weird Zoom H4n combined with basically a wide angle action cam in a single box so that musicians or artists could perform, get reasonably decent audio uh, out of a single device. Uh, Canon's is pretty much the same. This is the Mini X, and there's no price yet on it, but it's basically a wide-angle lens, two microphones strapped to a tiny box uh, that sets up on a stand and is set up for musicians and other people to perform in front of. Now, Devin, first of all, there's no price yet on this, but what price range do you think something like this should be in a market where we already have, you know, mini action cams at $200 or less, and we also have multiple offerings from companies like uh, Zoom that are in the 249 range? You know, it's interesting because um, it, it's seeing Canon step into this marketplace where originally like the Zoom Q4n and the other Zoom products we've seen, we've been like, you, you, you know they're dominating this portion of the marketplace, but understandably, I didn't think that there's a whole lot of like uh, consumers, just people who are willing to buy into that. I kind of see this as maybe they think this is something that rolls into vlogging. I've seen more and more vlogging really blowing up in popularity on YouTube, but... And considering uh, the current form factor, everything else, it doesn't seem to be a great solution for that. And also, too, from like a musician angle, I kind of understand part of it. Uh, like if you really are low tech and you just want to set up the camera in the back of a room. But at the same time, it's also really um, kind of garbage in terms of the audio quality because the mic needs to be where the sound source is. Like that's just a thing. That's like how you light a scene is how you place the mic towards the audio source. And seeing here, I'm kind of like, I get it, but I just don't understand why Canon seems to be jumping all over the demographic. I don't know if they're like thinking this is a way to attack the market share and bring like, I guess more people into the Canon fold. But for me, it's one of those where, yeah, the audio may be good, except it's far from the sound source. Yeah. The visuals may be okay compared to an action cam or something like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's, I, I just, I'm like, if for me, I wouldn't even spend necessarily 200 on it. Um, and 
I give them props because I know the audio will at least be like very passable, especially in a vlogging situation where we don't see a lot of vloggers using things like action cams. And that's purely on an audio quality standpoint. Have you actually seen any of these like uh, camera mic combinations in real life? I mean, uh, on someone's desk or someone using it? No, not once. Um, yeah, it's through all. But then again, too, I'm also in the realm of like video people. I feel like this is something I wouldn't see on somebody's desk uh, because the consumers that use this don't necessarily work professionally or are part of a professional team for putting content together. And so it, it feels really for like, I guess, an impulse Amazon purchase or something like that. <laughs> you've got because I mean, you've got the zoom up there on Amazon and it's 250. Um, and for somebody who doesn't know a lot, and this promises to be a one-click solution, as long as you charge it, you press the record button, and just like your cell phone, it takes good video and you know somewhat better audio. I think that that's kind of impulse purchase range for uh, the kind of people who would use this product. I couldn't see somebody who like really loves filmmaking or something like that saving up for a product like this because I just don't think it delivers on any front particularly well. Um, but like you said, when it's a secondhand thing, like a musician or something like that, I can kind of see that, but I've never seen one in the wild. Uh, but maybe Canada knows something we don't about the market and who would use it. Maybe it's not an American thing. Maybe this is like a really popular thing over in Europe or is becoming or something like that. Like I said, the vloggers, the only market I could think of that would actually want something like this. And even then it's super limited for, you know, what, what you've got going on. Now we're kind of coming up on NAB here, and a camera like this on the lineup uh, to me sort of spells lack of anything exciting uh, for Canon coming down the line. Uh, there are rumors, and we'll get to them, about a possible Canon uh, 6D Mark II, and of course the M6, which is sort of a smaller sibling to the M5, is being released along with some really lackluster uh, Rebel series cameras that are just like. Whatever, Canon. Uh, <laughs> I do you think this NAB is going to have anything surprising from Canon, or is it all just going to be uh, same old sort of lame crap? And, uh, you know, sorry, guys, if you love Canon, but <laughs> Canon hasn't really impressed me in the last maybe five or six years. Sure. Um, I think that Canon definitely isn't out isn't going to go out there and make a huge splash with anything new. I think a 60 Mark II would actually be a pretty big deal um, just because I've seen the 60 still in wide use. Um, you could argue there's better cameras out there at that price point, uh, but when you consider the Canon glass, the full frame look and everything else, 6D really has that cornered really well. I, I think overall we've seen a lot of um, amateurs and professionals moving towards something like the Blackmagic Ursa Mini or Sony FS or something like that. Uh, but there are still people out there who like to do short films and things like that on a 6D, and it's still a bit of a workhorse. And while there's kind of some shortcomings, if you have like an audio guy and other things like that, the, the, the shortcomings become less important to you, where solo shooters like me and several others wouldn't really consider a 6D because it's more trouble than it's worth considering what's on the market. As for the other cameras coming out, like the Rebel, I think it's everything else from Canon. It's incremental improvements. It's not a whole lot of innovation. It's them just making sure they're holding on to the market share that they've got. Um, they don't have, you know, because what was it? Last year, the the new 1D came out, or was it the year before? Um, that was out for, you know, that was kind of a splash. And then like the C300s, they've done pretty significant updates to that line. And then adding that, I think what everyone's going to be Google or like 
losing it over is the um, what do they call it C six hundred or something like that. They got some cinema yeah. thing. There's several uh, cinema line cameras that are in the twenty to forty thousand dollar range. Right. Uh, that, the, like I, I guess you call it like the Alexa competitor or something like that. Uh, but which is an interesting factor in itself because the I don't see those in the wild either. Where I will see Alexas and Alexa Minis, um, I don't see the Canon, and the Canon's new. But I imagine most people are going to be looking at that camera, and that's going to be the only thing interesting in the booth that they haven't seen before is that camera in person. Um, it'll be interesting to see if Canon can take some of that away from Alexa because let's face it, when it comes to your larger budget productions uh, in in narrative work and uh, such. They've totally dominated, and very few people have come close. And unless it's really been a budget concern, that's the only time that Sony or anyone else comes in. And Canon comes out with a camera that has, you know, is trying to compete at that level. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if people can because I know people like the Canon Cine glass. I've seen that used a lot on different Alexa bodies and things like that. But for uh, for this, it's it's I. You're right. I just don't see Canon doing a lot at NAB, and. Uh, you take some of this consumer stuff they're coming out with because let's face it, like they probably make more money on a Rebel than they do on a 1DC when you consider numbers and everything else. But um, oh, I think in this... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, because they just... I can't imagine they move that many units of a 1D. Now, they probably... Their bread and butter is probably the 5D because I think they move so many units of 5Ds that that's probably where their camera, their I guess their body market, they get most of their money. But... For this, it's just, um, I'm not terribly excited for it. A Mark II would be cool to see if they did something interesting with it. But other than that, I can't say I'm looking forward to anything from Canon this year. Um, <laughs> uh, and I imagine you aren't either, but you're more of a Canon shooter than I am. Uh, you know, one of the things, and I'm actually holding up a webcam here. I finally dug one <laughs> up in my office while Devin was talking, and I have nothing to set it on. Uh, one of the things <laughs> that I'm, um, I'm, I would be interested in is if they released... Say a 6D Mark II that had many of the features of the 5D Mark IV and had 4K shooting capabilities. And, you know, maybe they give it poor autofocus or took away the touchscreen or something like that. Uh, and they priced it in the, I don't know, $1,700, $1,600 range. Uh, that would make it sort of competitive to uh, the A6500 and some of these other cameras that are out there as far as video recording. And still give yeah. you plenty of features in the full-frame uh, photo market. But Canon's kind of dumb, and uh, they're not going <laughs> to do that. Uh, there was no reason they will do that. They crippled the 5D Mark IV and took away a mm -hmm. bunch of the features, which is really frustrating I don't think that they're going to do anything smart. Canon, uh, you know, as as well known of a company as they are, they are just really bad <laughs> at uh, uh, servicing their customers. And they've basically almost accidentally stumbled into the film market continuously. And now they're just floundering trying to figure out what people want. Uh, will that actually happen? Uh, probably not. Uh, I don't think Canon's going to do anything really amazing. And now that they are uh, sort of... In, in the cinema mode, I guess, uh, and I will say sure. that the cinema lenses do look really nice, uh, Canon's going after the big fish. Uh, they're getting rid of a lot of the features for the smaller cameras or just reiterating the exact same features. And in the higher-end market, they are creating 30, 40, 50, $100,000 cameras that will sell uh, and make a lot of money in a single purchase as opposed to a bunch of smaller 
profits from littler cameras. Uh, will we eventually see a 5D Mark V with 4K full frame? Uh, probably, but not until every other camera in their lineup has run its course or somebody just completely stomps on their throat and drops into the ground. And, you know, Sony, on the other hand, is doing an awesome job with the A99 Mark II, the A7S, or the A7 series in general, and even their, uh, you know, APS-C sensor cameras. What the hell is Canon doing? And then now you have Olympus in the game, you have... Uh, Panasonic, you know, coming out with what hopefully is a rather spectacular GH5. Uh, Canon is kind of uh, doing the same thing Nikon is doing, just sort of <laughs> sitting on their laurels. Uh, I, I, Nikon's further behind the game, but I can't imagine Canon will keep up in the video market if they don't get on it. Uh, I don't know. De- Devin, do you have anything to add to that before For we me, on? Well, for me, I think that Canon already has a really strong foothold in the uh, how do you classify it i guess prosumer market and that's your um your like c100 c300 kind of thing i think that they have that locked in really well and i'm not sure that um and i I think we've discussed this so many times they don't want to bastardize the sales of those higher-end cameras and it's unfortunate uh because you know they got their they they got their making off of that 5d and now they've ignored that because now that the name's out there they're going big it i think from a marketing perspective it's not a bad move to take um though you know it's i think it's just canon's lost interest in dominating that sub two thousand dollar price point of the video side of the market you know they they have it pretty much you know as much as they've always had it in stills you know they share a bit with nikon like i've i've never seen a wedding photographer with canon they always have nikon so uh but still i've seen like everyone who goes out for journalism and stuff like that wait 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 wait, back up you've never seen a wedding photographer with canon gear yeah, I've I've been to about seven or eight weddings now, and of course, as a guy, you know, camera guy, I'm always checking out what they're using. And that no, they've always had Nikon's. Really? Um, yeah, I I asked a few of them why, and they all seem to come back to the same answer. They go, ah, oh, it's better focusing in low light, and they go, that's that's hmm. the main struggle I have. So I went with Nikon. So I'm sure there's some out there, but I'm just saying, in my experience, the wedding photographers are always on Nikon, and the journalists and the people in the news studio they tend to be on Canon, uh, but. So I feel like they have all that, and I think they just don't care about the sub-$2,000 market. I think there's not enough money to be made at that point. And so I think the main concern is basically going to be Canon trying to get that area Alexa branding or name. Hmm. Well, uh, last thing before we move off of this Canon horse that we've been beating, uh, there are rumors that there is going to be a 60 Mark II announced at NAB this year. Uh, no real word yet on full specs or anything of that nature, but uh, they do figure that we'll see maybe 5D Mark III uh, focus features as well as a touchscreen and probably no 4K. So if you <laughs> had your hopes up for that, uh, don't because it's not going to happen. On that same note, uh, and I've got this in the notes too, uh, the 5D Mark IV has seen a significant price drop. You can now pick that camera up for just $2,750. That is about, I believe, $600 or $700 shy of the original launch price. Uh, So if you want a good deal on a 5D Mark IV, uh, there you go, guys. Brand new on eBay. Check out the link in the show notes. 
you know, as a person who shot on the 5D Mark IV for about four months, I didn't like it that much. Uh, I found it to have some great photography features, but in the video market, I was just really pissed off that I had to deal with crop sensor again. And that's because I've gotten used to the full frame look of the Sony a7S Mark II. So uh, take that for what it is. Uh, the HD video in there is phenomenal. They've done a great job with that. Uh, I wish it had image stabilization, which it does not. And the mm -hmm. touchscreen, you know what? I'm not going to complain. The touchscreen was actually better than I thought it would be. So there you go. The touch focus was also pretty handy. Now, if you could give me full frame, I would be much happier but they can never give us all the specs that we want now this next one's uh to you devin you basically put in uh rumors of a black magic pocket camera in the show notes i know nothing yep. of this to be honest i wasn't paying attention to black magic's pocket camera the pocket camera has been something that i have always poo-pooed and thought was somewhat uh not great you on the other hand own one i think you love it <laughs> you haven't said anything uh, horrible about it no well it's all the shortcomings haven't gone away there's still of course battery issues and everything else but in terms of being a really cheap camera that can give you a really filmic look um it it can't be beat for the price point of a thousand dollars considering it shoots pro res it doesn't need external recorders or anything like that um but you're not going to use it with audio so that means you need an audio guy or an audio bag um and you're not going to use it without a power source because you only get like 15 20 minutes of recording per battery um so the whole po pocket part is super misleading because no matter what you're gonna bring extra stuff to go with it now if you're willing to bring the extra stuff um it's a really solid performer it's like their cinema camera but smaller it sucks that it's a 3x on the crop but um i've been excited about i've been actually looking at selling my current pocket and getting the upgraded one that does 1080p 60 um but now you know there's rumors that at nab it's gonna you know they're gonna come out with another one i think these rumors are false um and it's based off of one fact that it says h265 is possible We've never seen a Blackmagic camera do a compressed format like that, and for good reason, uh, because it costs money in licensing, it costs money in chips and processing when you're building it, um, and it complicates the whole process, I think, in terms of color science and everything else. So I... I think for that reason alone, I just couldn't see it because I think it just kind of goes against black magic. None of their hardware has ever touched any kind of compression, whether it's a hyperdeck, a shuttle, a, you know, an Ursa. It doesn't Wait matter. Wait doesn't their, uh, doesn't their uh, screen recording, their, their little five-inch monitor have a compression option in the menu? I, you mean the, the video assist? The I'm video pretty assist, sure the video assist that... didn't. No? Okay. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I could I, be wrong. I, I've no, only I used that thing too. like twice uh, ever, you know, so... <laughs> Uh, okay, so no compression. Uh, you don't think H.265 is an option. And to be honest, I think you're right, Devin. Why would they go that route when uh, the UHS-2 standard is out now and we're seeing 300 and 400 meg per second cards uh, hitting the market from Sony and from SanDisk? They now have the speed, all the speed they need to do that sort of thing. Yeah, and the Digital Video Assist only does DNxHD and only does ProRes, and those are the only options options it's got 
Okay, uh, I am completely <laughs> wrong. Thank you for no, uh, school. There's me. a lot of video recorders out there uh, to get your head spinning. But so I don't think the 265 is even something they would care about, saying things like better battery life. It would be interesting if they did come out of the Micro Four Thirds 4K, but once again, I struggle to think that they could fit 4K into that super 16 millimeter sensor, but maybe they can. Uh, that just seems really small to me in terms of pricing, unless they go with a larger size sensor, which they could always do too, keeping the micro four thirds mount. So, I mean, Blackmagic's been kind of quiet, and I'm not sure they're going to come out with anything new, considering they just came out with a new Ursa Mini, like, or announced it. So I imagine that's the only thing they're going to bring to NAB. Now, hold on. Uh, the new Ursa Mini, isn't that just the 4.6K Ursa that they announced a while ago, or am I incorrect? No. Uh, no, is there believe, even newer version? Yeah, or, yeah. or did they just finally start shipping the 4.6 right before they get to this year's NAB after the announcement last year? No, you, the two different products, one's called a 4.6, the other one's called an Ursa Mini Pro. Oh. Uh, the main difference... Yeah, the main difference is that the Ursa naming. <laughs> the Ursa Mini Pro um, has a bunch of physical controls. It has a built-in ND. Um, like the side of the screen shows what you typically see on a broadcast camera, which is like time code, audio levels, all that kind of thing, making it really look like a very shrunken down broadcast camera. And I think that that's what they're aiming for. I don't think they saw enough... Uh, the, of them flying off the shelf for ENG or documentary types, uh, though we have seen a large interest in the Ursa Mini. And in this case, they went, okay, you want physical switches, you want to be able to use the camera without looking, um, and you want the built-in ND, so they gave you all that. So it's a whole new product. I, I imagine it'll probably still be a year and a half before it ships, but they'll probably be showing that at NAB, and that's probably all they're going to have to talk about. I mean, sometimes they launch a few products, but I imagine with them putting all the R&D into this, I can't imagine them launching something else, but it wouldn't be impossible to think that they've taken some of this technology and finally made a 4K pocket camera. Um, but those rumors so, are unconfirmed. Help so. me here, Devin. I've got a B&H open right now. I'm looking, yeah. and the Ursa Mini Pro 4.6K, is, is that the one you're talking about, or is that yep. the uh, 4K, uh, 4.6K that I was thinking of previously no the 4.6k you're thinking of previously is just a 4.6k as far as i know man Um, (laughs) why do they do that this is really confusing Uh, when you think you've got the naming down and then instead you end up with something like that i've seen actually and this is surprising to me i've seen a a number of ursa minis in the field and uh, you know i watched the guy wandering around trying to shoot a documentary with it i was like what are you doing He's like, well, uh, you know, I really needed a good camera, and this is the camera I went for. And he's like, but uh, I have to light every scene, so they're set up every time. I'm like, you're doing a documentary. Uh, wouldn't you want a camera with better low light performance? And he's like, well, um, if you take the time to light, and he started giving me the lighting lecture. And I completely understand that. Like, if you have the time to light, but usually, and maybe I'm wrong, but the documentary stuff I've worked on was very spontaneous. And you kind of just had to capture everything and hope for the best. And if you're sitting there setting up lights before each interview or doing anything like that, you could miss what you need to actually yeah. film am i wrong no that's totally true uh for documentary work it's not i would say an ideal camera the ursa mini 
um, I can kind of see there are so many pro with the built-in ND and everything like that. I could see it being somewhat of a documentary camera because let's face it, it's low light is still better than when, when people are making documentaries on top of the DVX 200 Bs, uh, you know, with the mini DV tapes back in the day. So it's, <laughs> it's, I'm not saying like it's, um, you know, oh, it's so garbage. It can't be used for documentary work. It's like, no, the low light, you know, you take it up to 1600 ISO. It's not bad. In 1600 ISO, you can shoot in a street light. Like, um, you're not going to have night vision, but um, you, you can shoot in the street light. Uh, the other thing, too, apparently, if I remember right, is that the four point, the 4K and the 4.6K, I think, were supposed to have interchangeable mounts, and then that ended up not being a thing, or at least uh. they didn't sell kits to do it. And the Pro, I think, will actually allow you to change mounts as well as putting on that B4 mount so you can use your broadcast glass as well as the little uh, B4 hookup so you can power your zoom lenses for your ENG cameras. So yeah, it's it's a totally new model. It's a thousand dollars more than the four point six K, and that thousand dollars is buying you ND and all the physical switches you could want. And I think that's about it. I think they changed nothing else. They just made physical switches, a few more programmable buttons. Oh, and a record button on the outside of the camera because I guess that was a problem before. You had to, like program one of the user buttons on the outside to be a record button, um, <laughs> and that's it. Though for some people, spending an extra thousand to have that built-in ND makes a huge difference. Uh, but like you said, when I think of a documentary camera, uh, I think of cameras like the Panasonic's because sometimes you want that autofocus. I know everyone's going to cringe when I say that, but uh, there's some times where like uh, you're running following something and you don't have time to pull focus like you just slip it into auto and hope you get you know a couple seconds worth while you run alongside something happening or you're bouncing around in the back of a car um there's a lot of times where things like autofocus totally come in handy and that's one of those things that like being a dslr shooter i've gotten used to not having because uh i mean dj's had experience with it things like the panasonic dvx 200b like that had great autofocus like yeah, that, that really did. worked and because <laughs> the sensor was so small like everything was in focus you didn't yeah no it, it was it was easier to hit the focus too and i'm pretty sure that worked off of a metering right they use like infrared light or something yeah, like that. yeah it was basically just there was an ir blaster at the bottom and it measured how far the distance was by like the reflected light off the object and you know because the sensor uh gave you such a deep depth of field you could basically yeah. get everything <laughs> in focus it was the same thing with the uh really old uh pan or canon g series and xl series cameras i think the xl you could you know it had the interchangeable lens so you had some like a little bit more but it was still such a tiny sensor like everything's just in focus now uh devin while we're on the documentary subject you know what people can go out and buy today for very affordable price yeah that would also be handy for them uh if you remember not too oh, many yeah. years ago only about two years <laughs> ago uh, a very expensive 4k camera that also had pretty decent low light performance uh i think you could get all the way up to 6400 iso without any issue uh is the sony fs 700 uh which has since been replaced by the fs7 and and uh, the SF5 mm -hmm. to a lesser extent. But this bad boy uh, with adapters and so on is now selling for around $2,000 uh, with the yeah. 4K module and all of the upgrades. Uh, that is very affordable, a very formidable camera. The form factor was always kind of iffy. But hey, you know what? If uh, 4K on a APS-C sensor is what you're going for and you want a professional style camera, guys, you know, check the used market. There oh, yeah. were a lot of awesome cameras out there uh, that uh, had, uh, you know, ha still have uh, a good spot in production today. Well, and, and uh, not... 
not just that, but while you bring that up, you can even get that camera with its original Sony glass, which means it has the auto iris, the autofocus, yep. and all those capabilities as well. Man, the price. That is so affordable. I can't believe that. Even there's some lens kits on here uh, fully kitted out for like $3,500. What <laughs> a freaking bargain. Uh, one camera that was mentioned in the chat, and I forgot completely about it, but the XF300 series. Yes, you are mm-hmm. absolutely right. I think that had a one-third inch sensor and still decent low-light performance. And man, that was an easy camera to get shots. I, I used to do a lot of uh, basketball stuff with that where you you basically were just at a stand with a switcher you know, in a control room room and you point your camera and you didn't even really have to worry about focusing because everything right. was in focus again that's amazing i wish well and too uh, these use camera guys like these have xlr inputs like for mm-hmm. your solo shooters you're you're essentially like getting a c300 mark ii you're getting 4k you're getting xlr inputs built in nds and all this other stuff for the price of a c100 like oh, that's man. that's a freaking bargain and anymore you know uh a lot of people are like, what new camera should I buy? I'm like, man, I don't know. I would check the used market and look to see what's available because if your budget's $1,000, it can go a long ways these days just by picking up uh, people who are on the constant upgrade cycle. And even myself, I used to buy a new camera probably two times, three times a year just maybe to mess with the new stuff or to be familiar with it when I had a uh, new project coming or maybe just to be like, here's what's on my equipment list so that you hire me. Now, yeah. I've been sitting on the A7S Mark II for quite a while. The I'm not even getting rid of the GH4. I'm going to keep that around. Uh, the G80 or GX85 I'm using as a B camera works great, and the GH5 will be fine. I, I mean, I guess that is a new camera purchase, but I mean, yeah. <laughs> I haven't really done anything new since the A7S Mark II, and it's met all of my needs. I've got another feature coming up uh, here in July that I'm working on, and I, I'm not planning on doing any major upgrades to my camera kit and my lenses i have kept all my canon lenses and if canon comes out with something compelling maybe i'll buy it but at this point every camera that's out there does a pretty decent job and uh, yeah. minus you know the black magic pocket which is utter garbage <laughs> and you might as well just throw <laughs> down and start it on fire because it's useless no one wants that but even you know i rip on the canon stuff that's out there guys uh even down to the old, 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 old T2i, you can still get uh, very good 1080p images out of it. So don't fret yeah. about the camera. Don't spend all your money on that. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff out there. Speaking of cool stuff, uh, Devin added this to the show notes, and I realized that it is coinciding with the GH5 announcement. Uh, Atomos or Atomos or however you would like to say that is making another ninja product uh the ninja inferno i wonder how many more uh descriptive (laughs) fighting words they can come up with in the future but uh this appears to be what looks like a pretty decent monitor package uh with uh 4k recording and the monitor itself uh, we've got ips we've got uh uh, you know high brightness uh we've got uh 10 bit 422 prores and dnx hd hr recording uh oh hr Ooh, uh, I was just about to say HD. Um, anyway, this thing, I don't know. Uh, Devin, I've got a little <laughs> rant real quick, and then I'll, I'll throw it to you. But sure. basically what I want to say about Blackmagic, or not Blackmagic, I'm sorry, about uh, Atomos is they make great products. They're, their screens are getting way better than they used to. From the original Ninja to today, like the screens are basically a completely usable screen. But, man, they go through batteries, 
and they use freaking huge batteries. Uh, so if you're using the Sony L-Series batteries on one of these guys, uh, by the time you get it batteried up, a hard drive in it, and you get it mounted, I've seen rigs where the a Ninja was actually bigger than the camera that they were shooting on. And it gets to this point where you're like, is this useful? And I understand, yes, better color capture, everything else, blah, blah, blah. But in the end, a lot of times, even when I did use the Ninja to record in tangent or in, in tandem with my camera, I, it was easier to just grab the footage off the camera because it took up less space. It was already compressed. Uh, you know, we weren't aiming for something crazy, you know, high bit rate. Bam, done. The only time I ever reach for my Ninja these days is if I need to do green screen. But other than that, no freaking reason reason at all for me uh, Devin now that I've I've complained a little bit about the <laughs> the large size of these and the batteries and everything else uh, you know what's the plus size here um I mean there's there's a few uh for one thing uh when it comes to editing uh H264 is still really sluggish if you're on anything except for like Final Cut Pro what? um I've yeah, I've seen it sluggish on DaVinci Resolve. It's sluggish on Premiere. I know you don't have that much of a problem, but I've used big Avid systems that are sluggish on H.264. It's just there isn't a fantastic implementation except for like Final Cut, which they're just taking advantage of Intel's How quick sync technology. How old computers are we talking? Because I'm running a f- three-year-old uh, Pentium uh, 4790K. <laughs> Uh, yeah. I guess, I mean, I have a, a Titan X, whatever the latest Pascal or something is. So, you know, I guess it's, that, it's that but regard. That's but I've, part I of haven't it. had it's... 462 problems <laughs> in probably like five or six or seven years, probably five or six I, years at least. I haven't had any problems with it, near say, but... Uh, when it comes to like we would be doing broadcast news and we need to edit quickly, uh, scrubbing the timeline, just having that be immediately responsive is like a huge thing that speeds up my workflow. And H.264 is not responsive when you scrub the ti- timeline. It plays fine and you can, you know, we would have systems with uh, 6700Ks in them and stuff like that. It, it's not a matter of like using CPU cycles because we weren't maxing CPU, we weren't maxing IO. It's just a matter of like in order to determine what the frame is, it's got to jump forward and backward B frames and everything else to pull together what you're doing. So scrubbing the timeline just sucks. And that's why it just made sense in several production workflows I've been in to do something like a ProRes because the renders are super fast uh, to come out of a file because there's yeah, very little. You don't have to times. read the compression. And so like when you stack all that stuff up, it's just like, okay, we have to spend more money on data, but we'll be able to edit faster and more efficiently. Now, for being a solo shooter like myself, I'm totally in your shoes when it comes to that because i'm like yeah i'm just gonna grab this like little 64 gig sd card shoot a day's worth of footage load it and then especially too if you're not going to spend more than 10 minutes color correcting it then yeah why spend all the extra space on it and then of course you know you want to store it you never want to delete anything so then you're like trying to store these giant files it doesn't make sense so if i was working on a short film project or a feature film project where it's like yeah we're gonna spend twenty thousand dollars on color then okay yeah let's like go all the way 10 bit four two two at least something like that but you're right most of the time like if your end distribution is youtube it's all going to be crunched down to 8-bit yes going 10-bit to 8-bit is kind of nice but it's, it's for me it's not essential and it's not a make it or break it kind of situation like a lot of people think it is so there's certain workflows where this totally makes sense because it's like oh i can use this camera in this workflow um other times where it doesn't make any sense. And I think too, like with a GH5 doing 10 bit, everyone's arguing about that. And it's like, come on guys, it's, you know, it doesn't make that much of a difference. 
you know, I guess maybe I, I'm maybe I'm doing something right and I don't realize it, but I haven't <laughs> had any scrubbing issues. I, I've had timelines that are you know an hour and a half long with hundreds of assets, uh, including audio, video, and so on, and I can scrub through them without much issue. I do when I'm doing a lot of scrubbing set my uh, playback rate to half resolution. I don't know is that a mm-hmm. Is is that the reason that I get good scrubbing? Because I, I haven't had any problems. Like well, it's, it's let pretty me, much okay, instantaneous to, for me. Because right, we brought this up before, so let me make it more like numerical. For me, the difference is even on a high end system. Let's say I, I scrub, you know, just a simple clipping of footage. Um, if I spend one second scrubbing on an H two six four composition, um, I'll end up with like I don't know two or three frames per second. And for a lot of people, scrubbing at that speed isn't a big deal. But then when I use something like ProRes or DNX HD or something like that, when I scrub, I'll get 30 frames a second as I scrub. Like, it'll just update that fast that, uh, you know, I, like I can see exactly where I'm putting the cursor head. I don't have to nudge it anywhere to make it happen. So uh. that's kind of the difference. It's a very small thing. And like I said, for most editors, unless you're really moving fast because you're under the gun and this needs to hit, you know, the news or something like that, that doesn't matter. Like, scrubbing performance, hey, it, it updates when it gets there it's not a big deal um but that's kind of what i'm talking about okay, when i say scrubbing true. performance i can tell you that uh i will scrub to the general region and then arrow back and forth until i get to the spot i'm looking for uh, right and i guess I, I never really paid attention to that so well and you, that's you win it's this not round, a, <laughs> it, well and that's not a cpu bottleneck or anything like that that's just the way the algorithm works with the software and lots of software has that problem minus final cut but i think final cuts doing background proxies i believe as well as i know they're using intel quick sync which means it the you know the cpu is using the cache in order to like get that data going so it goes a lot faster than like using cuda where it has to go across the pci express lanes uh, there is one question in the chat about uh, the storage application or the storage that we use for our media. And uh, Devin, I, I don't know what you're doing right now. So do you have anything specific that you want to talk about? Otherwise, uh, I've got a few things going on here. Sure. Um, I think for most people who aren't tech savvy, uh, I need to like add this to the notes because I feel like we're going to at least talk for five minutes about it. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, right? Because that's what it always goes super nerd. Um for people who are tech savvy, um, who really understand computers, IT, and all that kind of stuff, um, I've actually set up a. I got an ASUS server motherboard. Uh, it's kind of not the right size for ITX, but I forced it into an ITX case. Uh, but it has a, an option called IPMI, which literally means you have remote control of the BIOS, like the whole system. It's what server admins use to access the physical hardware, where you can physically power up and power down a machine. Um, whether or not the operating system is responding or doing what you want it to. Um, so I do that so I can run things completely headless. And then on top of that, lately, I've been really a fan of... Um, uh, I know a lot of people say free NAS. For me, free NAS is just too complicated. Why do you need to like have the CPU handle what a storage controller normally does? I know there's reasons for it. I'm just saying for storage, I don't. Um, so <laughs> I know he loves his free here. NAS. He's making faces because he loves his free NAS. I actually just went with Unraid. Um, I like the fact that uh, it does basic pooling, which means I have a parity drive that can handle in case a drive fails. I do only have single drive failover, but I can always just pop a drive out, plug a new one in and say, rebuild it. I can always just add more disks to it if I want it to be bigger. They don't need to be the same size, same brand or anything like that. They just need to be working disks. So I like that flexibility that I can keep upgrading it as I go. I bought a little ITX tower that's got 
uh, eight hot swap bays. And so currently I have several six, eight, four terabytes in there. So I have about, I'm looking at it, 36 terabytes of space. So a lot of my stuff is on that. Um, I've also got a few like backup storage drives too that I eventually move storage stuff to, but I kind of use that also too, cause I like having a home server. Now, if you didn't understand any of that, cause you're not a technical guy and you're not an IT guy, then, um, uh, just using something like a QNAP, uh, being able to put in drives for that, uh, Synology, I really like their stuff. Uh, even in like, you don't have to get up to enterprise, even their consumer end stuff is really good in my opinion. So, um, Synology stuff is good. I know Western digital, a few other ones do it as well. I guess if they're on sale or something like that, but one of those, cause I mean, gosh, 4k footage, it starts taking up a lot of space. I'm actually a, a little ghetto, but not extremely ghetto these days. I have two one terabyte SSDs in my main system for uh, projects that I'm working on immediately. Uh, those get transferred right over to a Drobo that is a four by four terabyte uh, setup that's USB 3.0. It's the I think the latest. Uh, Drobo's awesome. Yeah, it's the latest <laughs> four bay version. It, it's I used to have a, a free NAS in here as well, but it's so much easier to just do. Uh, um, this and plug it in and like have it set up and it's not it's virtually painless Mm -hmm. Uh, then uh, for long-term storage i have a 48 terabyte free nas server down in the basement that keeps everything Uh, but i wouldn't recommend editing off of a free nas server unless you have bonded uh, gigabit coming up from your free nas to a, a, a you know a switch that can handle that and then to your editing bay because you're bottlenecked by network speeds and it can be kind of a hassle, um, especially if you're doing anything uh, uh, data intensive or you're accessing multiple clips simultaneously. The Drobo yeah. itself, uh, with USB 3.0, if I'm not editing a huge project or my timeline doesn't have a bunch of stuff, I can generally actually work off of that without huge uh, lag issues, but my timeline will start to uh, not be as responsive as I like. So I generally move everything over to my SSDs on my main system uh, for editing, and I move it right back to my Drobo for uh, short-term storage. That way, it's always in two spots, and then I use, uh, I, th- I think it's uh, SyncToy or ToySync by Microsoft, uh, which is a really simple uh select and point at two folders, click a button, and it automatically determines any changes that have been made to one folder and updates it to the other folder. Uh, For those of you who've worked uh, with Windows for a long time, uh, it's very similar to the old briefcase application that used to be available. Uh, It's one click, it's painless, and you do that at the beginning of a project and at the end of each edit, and you always have the latest and greatest on both of those drives. And you just set whatever you're editing on to be the primary and your backup to be the Drobo. Super simple, sure. super easy. <laughs> uh, it's it's a little lame, like it's not doing it on the fly, but I had something doing it on the fly and occasionally it would corrupt edit files, which is mm, super that's annoying. No bueno. And it doesn't know that you're editing with that file at the time and there's updates being saved to the file, but it's always trying to update to the Drobo. So uh, I gave up on that and just do a manual sync at the end and the beginning of each project. So, so yeah, and and because uh, there's a few comments here. Look, if you're a solo editor, you're like a sh- solo shooter editor, whatever. You got 10 gig in your I, house? Oh, man. I, I really don't. Uh, I wouldn't say to bother with network storage or anything like that. Um, it makes so much more sense to just put the drives in your computer and edit off of them. Um, because when you consider, when we talk about our network solutions, minus if you've got some kind of 10 gigabit in your house, uh, network solutions only go up to 100 megabytes a second. Even your like 
you know, uh, run of the mill, three terabyte, four terabyte hard drives from Best Buy will do 150 to 200 megabytes a second. So you're going to severely bottleneck that if you turn it into some kind of server. Um, for me personally, I don't edit off of my server, which is why I don't need the speeds. Um, I have four, like two or three terabyte drives in a RAID 10, which gives me around 300, 400 megabytes a second. And that's for the big projects. And then usually what I'm editing off of is two 512 SSDs in a RAID 0. Uh, what I do to protect Wait, all of RAID that. RAID 0? Oh, man, yeah. Devin. Uh, what I, my, what I, my two one terabytes are at least <laughs> mirrored, you know. Yeah, well, if you can afford it. Um, for me, uh, the way that I work on protecting that, I actually I prefer a software called SyncBack. Everyone, you can develop your own solutions, um, and this isn't a sponsorship or anything, but I like SyncBack, and SyncBack has done a great job of like checking when files are done being written to and then copying them over, or you can schedule them to say once a night, I want you to make this a backup. Uh, it can sync files anyways. It can keep two directories in sync. It can just do a backup. So I have it set up to do a backup. So even if I delete files off of my RAID, or something like that, they don't get deleted off of my server. So I can always go and pull those when I need to. And actually, I have three backups on top of that because that one terabyte rated drive is mirrored using a software called Rezillo, which is used to be called Sync based off of BitTorrent Sync. Um, and that will sync with my laptop for editing, which has a one terabyte SSD and will also sync back with my server. So for active projects, I actually have a one terabyte synced system across three different devices uh, just to make sure if something happens, uh, I can jump to another device and start editing right away or pull in another device and pull the files onto it and start editing. But when it comes to me, since I'm a solo editor, I don't need to edit off of a network device because I'm the only one going to be accessing it. So why not just edit straight off the machine where it costs nothing to get all that speed and performance? Um, so I didn't know this, but uh, there's a couple of comments in the chat that uh, Panasonic is discontinuing their their camera line, their video camera line, their camcorder line. I I could I could see it. I mean, um, when was the last time someone bought a video camera? I mean, even Canon, I feel like, has been feeling the struggle with that. Everyone's using cell phones, and I feel like mom and dad used to be the only people buying camcorders because a lot of uh, – video people went over to DSLRs or they went to higher end prosumer cameras. So I feel like consumer end camcorders, they're, they're just overpopulated with tons of brands that, you know, JVC, Panasonic, Canon, they're all making camcorders. And I feel like none of them are selling any. And Jeff in the chat room, uh, post a link, man, we would uh, definitely like to check that out. Um, I believe I, it. <laughs> I haven't read anything about that, but it makes sense. So one of the things that's, that's happening now and, and, I do see it in uh, the people I work with. They have the cell phone, like you mentioned, and then they have this desire for one pro product to do video or to take pictures of their kids or, you know, to do family stuff. Sure. And so they skip that entire intermediary line of, you know, point and shoot video cameras. Uh, They skip the, the, the like point and shoot uh, stills cameras, all those things in between. And they go straight from, uh, cell phone to a mid-range DSLR or uh, you know Micro Four Thirds camera, and a lot of the people that are moving to the Micro Four Thirds uh, are actually moving to uh, the the last three I talked to, Pin F. And I was like, well, why are you doing that? Well, I want to move to a better camera, and I want it to look really cool. And that <laughs> looks really cool, and I'm moving to a better camera. And, you know, you facepalm, and then you think about it, and you're like, well, okay, these guys want a tool that sort of does everything. It takes pictures, does video, 
and has a flippy screen and they want something that's also stylish and the stylish portion has won them over and now they're doing that so then everything in between is sort of like who cares now i will say that the easy use in some of these uh point and shoot uh video cameras these camcorders uh does make it uh, i don't want to say idiot proof but definitely a lot safer uh, to hand off for behind the scenes i still to this day have an xa 20 or 25 from canon which is the in Devin, you remember the one it's it's yeah. uh, basically it's a beefy camcorder with a handle on top and xlr mm-hmm. inputs and it's the camera i hand to people when i'm on set to do behind the scenes stuff uh, because it's got one button it's got a screen that's really easy to use it's got touch focus you know a rocker to zoom in and out and any child could grab that yeah. and operate it without screwing up and worst case you know i put a uh rode video mic pro on the front of it and plug it into the audio jack and bam you know bob's your uncle this is uh, it's really simple uh, and that's where i still see something like that but at the same time i think i think that doesn't well, sell enough cameras <laughs> no well and i think the main problem with that is just the branding like i know people who aren't video people who when they heard that um the season finale of house was being shot on a 5d they're like oh well that's the video camera i have to get and like i'm like the 5d is the worst video camera to get like you don't it's complicated it's hard to use like there's options and crap and you know um, have you tried installing magic lantern on a camera there's a reason <laughs> why there's so many tutorials and it takes some time and some effort uh, uh, yeah you're you're right and then uh, i don't know if you saw the video but it's pretty funny there's um there's a little like lego short film that's floating around on a lot of the camera blogs right now and it's a uh, you know coming to the set with the right camera and the, mm-hmm. the director yeah. is like oh good you got the latest red uh weapon and uh we're really excited that you spent all this money <laughs> and blew most of our budget on it now can you give me that like sort of wobbly in and out of focus look that you get from a you know like a canon 5d mark <laughs> yeah four? And you're like what and yep. I've heard that on set uh, so many times that I actually got a kick out of that. And then they're really mean about the sound guy on, on that little short. Uh, keep yeah. making fun of the sound guy. He's like, he's dumb, doesn't know what's going on. The sound uh, guys are always the butt of the joke. <laughs> That's, but, uh, it's unfortunate. We've we spent a lot of time uh, wandering off topic here. What yes, else do we, we have, have, Devin? So we've got three new cameras from uh, Canon that I quickly just wanted to mention. Uh, they're not very exciting. We've got uh, the 77D. We've got a new Rebel. And we've got uh, the EOS M6, which is basically the M5, uh, a little bit smaller, uh, minus the viewfinder. You have to pay extra to have an add-on viewfinder. And really, other than that, it's pretty much the same uh, camera. There aren't very many specs. And then the price is going to be a bit more affordable. I think they're dropping it by two or 300 bucks. So <laughs> that's it. There's a link to the article uh, over at The Verge if you want to check that out. But uh, otherwise, not really anything exciting to talk about. Now, uh, before we go, Devin, I do want to yes. mention the uh, GH5 one more time. We've kind of dropped the hints <laughs> of that. I am ordering one. You are not. Uh, but there's a lot of <laughs> news yet. out there. And I remember uh, just recently reading on, uh, Cin- I think it was Cinema 5D, uh, a really scathing review about uh, the H.264 compression on the uh, GH5 and complaints uh, that the pixel depth 
wasn't standing up to what they were claiming, and they were blaming uh, uh, blocking artifacts that they were seeing on this. Now, Devin, you're bigger on that sort of tech than I am. <laughs> uh, does this stand up? And I know I'm throwing this at you because I didn't even give you the link to the article. Yeah, I'm just right? like telling you this random <laughs> crap and expecting you to answer questions. But, um, but, it, but it did seem like a, it seemed pretty harsh. Uh, do you think there's... Um, uh, a little bit of bias there. I, I guess maybe bias is the wrong term, but maybe Panasonic didn't send them a uh, review model, and so they had to like beg for one. And now they're upset about it or something like that. Um, I I don't know because that that gets into the realm of controversy. Here's what because I did see when I eventually caught up after all my work, I caught up on the news and saw that that article had been taken down because I wanted. Oh, to read they did it finally take they it said. down. Okay. Yeah. Well, I went to an article of the few days ago and it had a notice saying, "Hey, we're reevaluating things and we have taken this article down in the meantime." So. I, I couldn't see exactly what they were saying, um, but I at least can speak to the fact of the 8-bit versus 10-bit and everything else because people are saying there's no difference in it. Um, it doesn't mean anything. And a lot of people are doing math based off of like lossless video data, which is a good starting point. And they're saying, what's the point of 10-bit when you don't have enough bit rate to consume 10-bit or uh, to capture everything that 10-bit can be? And the one thing that I find missing in a lot of these videos and articles and explanations and everything is that uh, H.264, H.265, you know, their compression works off of downsampling the data in its simplest, you know, way to explain it. That's what they're doing. They're they're sampling the data and they're they're like converting it down uh, to simplify everything. Now, uh, So people say a 10-bit file at 150 isn't enough megabits in order to facilitate a 10-bit file. Um, No, but neither is the 100-megabit file for 8-bit either, Um, like when you talk about raw video data. But what we're doing here is we're combining common colors, and by having that 10-bit file, it just means that the color you're recording is going to be that much closer to accurate um, than necessarily, you know, already starting with an 8-bit structure, which is already kind of taking the natural colors in the world and kind of bringing them. Yeah, yeah, because it averages so, four spots. So, I mean, you're, you're basically like you're losing whatever was in between those averages. Right. And people don't seem to understand why uh, Panasonic would have like maybe all these different modes, right? I feel like everyone... Uh, really likes to lock in and be like, this is the best mode to shoot. This is the mode you shoot in when you're serious. And I've never <laughs> that subscribed is not to that. true. <laughs> um, I like the whole reason why Panasonic has, say, an all intra frame mode, and I'm speaking about my GH3, having an all intra uh, frame mode as well as having a normal uh, IPM, or I'm sorry, I'm forgetting what the initialism is for it, but um, a non all intra frame mode is because they serve two different purposes. If I have a lot of action and I'm running handheld with the camera, I do all intra frame because motion data is more important for me um, than necessarily detail. I know I'm sacrificing detail when I use all intra frame. And why is that? Well, because you're spending a lot of data making sure you get the whole frame, which will make motion look smoother, uh, but you're going to lose a lot of detail if you're standing on a tripod. So when I'm standing on a tripod and not, there's not a whole lot moving in the scene, then I'm using a non all intra frame. Or if I'm like recording a waterfall where there's lots of data everywhere, um, you know, then I'll use something all intra frame even if i am on a tripod so there's different shooting modes depending on necessarily what you're capturing to try to make the most of that compressed bit rate and people don't seem to take that into account people don't seem to understand that like h264 has a baseline a main codec and different levels within that um on how complicated they make everything 
So I think at the end of the day, I think the 10-bit stuff is awesome. Also, it being able to output 10-bit just like the GH4 did, that's great because if you really want the best quality, you can go get that Atomos Ninja Inferno Burning Flame whatever, <laughs> and you can get you know your ProRes, your DNX HD file out of 10-bit if you really need the best. But if you're spending that much money, I'd say go with a higher-end camera that shoots a better codec system like the Sonys do. They have special cards for it, uh, but go then you know get an FS7 or something like that that'll serve you better than carrying around this giant rig you know trying to make a gh5 into uh, like an fs7 uh, it's just to me that doesn't make sense but to each their own you know there's several ways to skin a cat so i think in general i didn't see the controversy about 8-bit not being true 8-bit or something like that but i could see a way where you could make a test that shows the flaws of really basically showing the flaws of compression than necessarily showing the flaws of a camera because uh, i imagine just like the gh4 if you tested the output which is closer to what the sensor is going to give you, you'll see that on the HDMI output, it's probably going to be 10-bit uncompressed, even when it's recording in 8-bit like the GH4 did. I just imagine it's going to be the same way. So I can't report that that's the case. I can't report on what they did because I didn't get a chance to read it because now it's taken down, <laughs> um, which would have been a fun read. Uh, but either way, I don't know anything about the conspiracies on why they would try to make a false test. I don't think that that's a brand so of justice. so much hate floating around the internet and people were tearing it apart you know asking if they tried it in different nles uh, asking you know how they captured it uh you know uh, various other things and it's like whoa wait a minute these guys you know maybe they missed a few things like uh, stuff i wouldn't even thought of uh, as far as the gh5 and the gh4 goes though uh, the vlog guys it's not a silver bullet devin mentioned and i started laughing because uh he said you know uh you can't just pick one mode to shoot in and make that be the thing that solves every problem uh, i know shooters that paid the $99 upgrade to get V-Log for their GH4 and were upset, extremely upset, because they didn't like the look of the footage. They thought it looked like crap. And it's like, well, yeah. guess what, guys? You know, you're you're taking your contrast and you're uh, adjusting the saturation and it, they're expecting you to go through it and grade all that crap in post, do the extra work, and get it back to the vivid style that's in the camera. Sure. Well, and... It's, so, it's not just that. It's not just that. For no, me, I know, vlog, I know. I'm being, I'm very, I'm simplifying it extremely, Devin. Uh, there's way more to vlog than just contrast and uh, uh, right. vivid, you know. But it, but, but the two, thing is, is like, if you you do that, no going in, you're just getting a flat picture. And a flat picture is not attractive at all. You have to do something with a flat well, picture. And I think some of the complaints are even once you grade that flat picture, it doesn't come out brilliantly. And I think that, I forget who it was, but I was listening listening to a DP uh, talking about, I, maybe it was shooting flat on a uh, Sony or something like that, but he brought, um, he brought up brilliantly that like, you're, if you're recording to an 8-bit file, flat is like using a very small chunk of the data that's there. Like it's not recording a lot of color data and that's because it's so flat and then it's 8-bit on top of that. So it's really hard to come up with a really great image out of that. Now, then why shoot flat if you're not going to re uh, record it internally? And I saw him do things like where he was doing interior car scenes. He would shoot flat because it's a high contrast scene and he's just trying to get the full uh, dynamic range of the sensor to make a more usable image. But then when he wasn't shooting like out 
in, in a car scene where you've got super bright outside in the shade inside of the car and he was just shooting outdoors, he went back to a normal picture profile because he's going to get more color data that way as well as just more contrast and more detail that way out of the image even after grading. So he would pick back and forth. I mean, if you really want a silver bullet, I've seen guys who then run Vlog and run an external recorder and then grade the hell out of it. And if you do that, I'm sure you'll get magnificent images, uh, which I hope you would after all that hard work. Uh, but for a lot of <laughs> us a lot of us it's like if our end result's going to end up on youtube or it's going to end up on vimeo or something like that it's really hard to justify that much time for the little bit extra that you get and for some people it's totally justified after all uh you know uh, marquise brown uh or whatever mkbhd he shoots on a red weapon at 8k uh to then upload 4k or i think maybe youtube supports 8k and i think they support 8k to upload 8k to youtube like that's insane that's an insane amount of work considering no one has an 8k tv or anything close to it uh but for him it's justified God. because he wants to be the absolute best and the rendering and, times geez, oh yeah cheese and rice man that's, that's well, and, and he's he's a final cut pro guy so you know all he has is a macbook pro because that's the most oh, powerful God. thing they have they haven't it's updated like, their trash can yet oh so. that's it's so bad oh man yeah Okay, uh, last thing. There's a few questions in the chat room uh, about lenses. Uh, the 12 to 35 is uh, the Panasonic Zoom that uh, Devin owns, and I own the Olympus yes. 12 like to it. 40. Uh, there are pros and cons to both of them. Uh, Devin, uh, can you speak to the 12 to 35? I know it's lighter, skinnier, and less yeah. beefy, but what's great <laughs> about it? Uh, you're getting that. I think all the Panasonic glass is super sharp. I've really enjoyed. It resolves a lot of detail. It's a very contrasty lens. If you're looking for kind of a filmic looking lens, it's not ideal. Documentary work and ENG news work, it's a great lens because it really pops. It really works well. Even I've seen it on 4K. Uh, what you don't get is like, yeah, there's a little bit of breathing. You've got a wire focus ring. So it like repeatable focus isn't really a thing on that lens. Um, but that being said, the image stabilization works really great on it. I can't wait to see what it does on a GH5. And, um, and that being said, even though it's 2.8, because it's not parafocal, you will see it kind of getting darker, brighter during a zoom. I don't really record on zooms when I don't have a powered zoom lens, but that's something some people may be concerned about. Uh, but all in all, um, I ended up getting mine used for, I think like 600, maybe 550. And so at that price, I was like, this is totally worth it. This has They're a down to 475, man. Nice. Yeah. So it is a good buy. Uh, on, on the uh, reverse side, I have the Olympus uh, 12 to 40. Uh, it, pretty much the same things Devin said. Uh, great lens. Olympus does a good job. Uh, I, f I felt like the image quality out of the uh, the 12 to 40 was a little bit crisper. And it, when you zoom, you do not get any darkening like you do on the 12 to 35. Uh, build quality is. Uh, enormously Great. better it's all metal <laughs> the focus ring is not fly by wire it is a solid click in click out focus ring uh but the downside and devin wins in this category is if you want to travel lighter the 12 to 35 from panasonic is way lighter i don't i would say the image quality is within you know a margin of error between the olympus and the panasonic i thought it was better but you know that's more of a personal opinion than an actual uh test chart so go with whatever you think but sure. the weight size it you know it doesn't <laughs> compare like i would almost rather have sometimes a cheap 
plasticky lens that weighs way less, gives me basically the same range as another lens, and is lighter and fits in my pack in a smaller compact form factor. Uh, and in fact, I've been considering getting the 12 to 35 for travel and keeping my uh, 12 to 40 at home for that reason. As for the IS, uh, you will notice some image issues on the GH four when you enable the is uh, i was getting a little bit of of blur in my 4k image it was a little soft and i i don't know mm. if that was just me i haven't seen anybody else report on it but that was one of the big issues for the image stabilization now with the new firmware update for the uh, 12 to 35 that is supposed to work in conjunction with the uh, on on sensor uh, image stabilization system so that you have your five axis plus you have your lens stabilization uh, to give you supposedly phenomenal performance yeah uh, on the gx 85 that i use quite regularly the image stabilization in cameras is, is phenomenal um i love that camera use it immensely and uh, if you guys are wondering there's a couple of mentions of ergonomics this is actually what i use uh it's a little hipster it's a little uh you know wood but whatever uh <laughs> it, it builds a nice grip on the front of your camera it is basically a hand grip for the gx85 that gives you that form factor uh, there is also a hack to uh, drill in uh, to your GX85 if you're brave and add a microphone input, uh, basically <laughs> tapping the wires uh, for the little mic that's on there. Um, if you are brave, uh, there's a teardown on iFixit and they get right to the ribbon cable that has the microphone input so you That's could ballsy. do that if you wanted to <laughs> um there are a few people i know that have done that for the lx100 uh, which is a great point and shoot camera that also shoots 4k and has image stabilization i may at some point do a video of the lx100 being cut apart and uh, hacked into uh, but i'm waiting for the lx100 mark ii before i do that because i do love mm-hmm. that point and shoot camera very much and it is the one i hand to my wife when she needs to film 4k which isn't very often so it usually <laughs> <laughs> kind of just hangs out as a backup camera somewhere in a pack. I, I mean, I take it out occasionally when I'm only traveling with that. Or if you're afraid of being robbed, that camera by itself and no other lenses is probably the way to go. Uh, anyway, <laughs> um, I think that's about it, Devin. Uh, yeah. It's great to do a show again. Uh, sorry we've been gone for so long, guys. I apologize for the webcam issues at the beginning and we will try to start doing shows again regularly now that I have the studio sort of set up. My 4K 40-inch uh, panel is back up. I have <laughs> you know, all my gear back on the table. Look at how organized that is. No wires, not wires everywhere anymore. Yeah, just give reasons. it a week. Yeah, you know, it'll fill up fast. Uh, so hopefully, and I made a trip to Ikea today to uh, finish organizing the studio. So hopefully by next week I'll be in good shape. So... If Devin has time and I can make it Absolutely. work, we'll try and do another show next week. I will be gone two weeks in April, so uh, no shows there, but uh, I will try and post some pictures from Belize because it's unbelievable. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, mostly spending time in the capital, which uh, I heard is kind of gross. But whatever, I got a four-star hotel, which is equivalent to a two-star hotel in America. Yay! Nice! Uh, <laughs> on that note, Devin, where can people find you? Ah, uh, hit me up on Twitter, guys, at DevoCut. 
And as always, guys, you can find me at DSLRFilmNoob.com, on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob, and on YouTube, One Lone Dork. You can find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, anywhere podcasts are distributed. I will update the notes, the show notes. Uh, Devin, if you can add some of those networking links uh, to that. I also put Sync Toy in there, which is extremely free and extremely useful for backing up your stuff from one thing to another. On that note, we will see you next week and have a great GH4 GH5 release. We'll see you next time. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my first day.